Friends, one of the reasons I chose that Nigun is because we're moving towards the Parsha where Avraham is sitting at the Petach uh, Ohel, sitting at the entrance of, of his tent, and the angels come and, uh, and visit him. Um, God's messengers with the spirit of healing. And that, that, that Beshem Hashem is based on the idea the angelic forces are all around us. Some of us might understand that differently. Some of us as human angels who, who play such a role in being messengers. Okay, so to remind us of where we are, and I, I hope we can all embrace the gift of closing off America for the next hour and just being in some Torah learning. I mean, we're always about life here, you know, but taking a pause from uh, all the chaos and anxiety. Um, so I was thinking earlier, imagine if the awe and trembling we feel about tonight, um, we, we had that going into Yom Kippur, right? The feeling people have in America right now, if we went into Yom Kippur feeling the emotional intensity. So a reminder of what we're doing here in this enterprise. Our idea here is that tikkun olam, as we typically call it, repairing the world, is not um, a secular, ahistorical movement. Right? That actually this ought to be for Jews, however you take a role in the realm of trying to improve the world, unify the world. This ought to be Jewishly rooted. And that means it's complicated. That means it's complicated because um, it's something eternal. It's something that transcends time periods. It's something that's about history, it's about text, it's about culture, it's about our people. It's not just bandwagoning onto some cause uh, that we see out in the secular world. Rather, we ask big questions as Jews. We look at texts and we see how they relate. And one of our premises here is that one of the greatest gifts of the Torah is Shabbat. And that Shabbat is an institution, which is more than just some 25-hour experience, right? But actually, Shabbat is an idea. Shabbat is an idea, however we engage it practically, an idea which informs how we relate to our, our, our power to change the world. Right? Because Shabbat, in, in its most central form, is about rest. It's about rest and reflection. 
in a way that recharges the way we think about our impact. It recharges how we think about our impact. Okay, and so um, and so that's why we're taking ideas that are kind of strange, these malachot, and applying them to how we think philosophically and theologically to uh, to contemporary moral and spiritual problems. And that seems strange, but we do that because our tradition says God creates the world with thirty-nine malachot. The, then the Israelites built the Mishkan after leaving Egypt with these 39 malachot. And then Shabbat becomes the institution based around those 39 principles, those 39 practices of work that get extended. Okay, so here we go. Malachi 18, we continue to explore the theme of preparing to weave. This week we look at Osebate Nirin. Osebate Nirin, which are parts of the loom and are usually made from wire and are used to keep the warp separate are used to keep the warp threads separate. By raising the warp threads, the weaver enables the woof threads to pass over and under the warp thread. After this malacha of preparing the loom, we will be ready for oreg. Next week is oreg, weaving itself. With regard to practical modern observance, what is this malacha about? According to most scholars, there are not any applications beyond actions which involve a loom. So if you're not looming, then, then it's not a question. The one exception to this view, however, is the Rambam, Maimonides. For Rambam, this malacha includes basket weaving and making sieves or strainers out of reeds. So this malacha can be seen as calling to mind the production and use of baskets. What does the humble basket mean to us in Jewish tradition? Well, of course, there's the teva, the ark that Noah was commanded to build, which was basket-like and made watertight by being covered inside and outside with pitch. More obviously, and to scale, is the basket that Yocheved weaved to save her son's life. Who's Yocheved? Who's Yocheved? She's Moses' mother, right? Moses' basket was also covered on the outside with pitch, but on the inside, it was covered with a substance that had less of a stench. Rashi tells us that that was to save the righteous Moses from the obnoxious odor of the pitch. But we see that even though the construction of Noah's basket did not insulate him from the big bad world outside the ark, we are not told in the Torah of any attempt by Noah to try to convince God to save any human beings other than himself and his family. On the other hand, even though Moses was protected from the discomforts of the outside world by means of the inner insulation of his basket, he grew up to have the inherent and supremely human understanding of his obligation to protect a Jewish slave being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster, to save a person from harm at the hands of another person, and even to defend the entire Israelite nation when God wanted to destroy it. One Musar teacher, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, shares an idea about human strength based upon the story of Moses' basket. He writes, our strengths are greater than we realize. A person really has the ability to reach much more than his natural physical strengths. We think we are limited to one level. We can only move this, lift that, only stay away for so long. It appears that this is the explanation our sages give on the sentence, the daughter of Pharaoh stretched her arm and she took the basket that Moses was in. Her arm actually extended many amuts, many feet away. It's not intended to be understood that her arm physically got longer and then her arm shrunk back to its original state because through the gathering of all her energy and her will to save the child, in the merit of that, it was in her ability to achieve even the strength 
of Adam prior to the sin, even though the basket was far away. There is no measure for the strength of someone when they arm themselves with omens, with fortitude, and gavura strength. If they do, if they do, it's in their hand to reach much more than their natural strength would be. So Chaim Shmulevitz over there is saying, how did the daughter of Pharaoh reach the basket of Moses? It wasn't some miracle that her arm got longer, but rather each of us has a deep potentiality far beyond consciousness, right? And sometimes it takes crises to realize that. It, you know, take extreme examples like the Shoah, like the Holocaust, or someone who's going through a personal crisis when one realizes their strength to persevere. But even smaller cases, you know, I think the way this is often shown in kind of a Hollywood sense is kind of the mother who lifts up a car. Like I had the strength, I didn't even, the physical strength that was in me. But in our own lives, we perhaps see this more within our, um, our emotional resilience, emotional resilience. And so um, Chaim Shmulevitz in the teaching of Musar here says, actually we have to exercise our virtues. We have to exercise them. Don't wait for crises to, to exercise them. Sometimes we're capable of far more than when in the, in the social conformities we would ever imagine they are capable of. And so that's something thinking about. Like what, what does it take to go out of our comfort zone for our virtues to kind of shine? What does it mean to kind of rebuild uh, this sense of potentiality? And um, um, okay, there's more to there, there's a lot more, there's a lot more to say over there. But I think part of it is actually us uh, acknowledging each other. You know, I shared um, I shared on social media yesterday I, I, only because it connected to something else that um, I, I, for the first time in literally uh, 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 years, I, I broke down crying yesterday. And what stimulated it was an email from, um, from my daughter's teacher saying that, um, that the class stood up for her and clapped for her based on her getting um, her performance on this math test. And um, my daughter has, a, you know, I'm only saying this in this group here, has, you know, a lower sense of self-esteem and is kind of very modest and wouldn't put herself out there. And the thought of her surprised look standing in front of this class that's kind of clapping for her in her hard work when she feels that she's way below everyone else was just, a, it was an incredible powerful moment for me. And, and it helps me to think about what does it mean to celebrate each other? Not only our successes, but our potentiality, right? sense of, um, of what we're capable of. You know, yesterday I got a call from, not a call, I picked up our foster kid from his school, two-year-old boy. And they, uh, they said they want to kick him out. They want to kick him out. He's aggressive. He doesn't listen. You know, he's a traumatized uh, little boy. And, um, and they don't see his potential. They just see a kid who's causing trouble in the class. And I understand they're managing the whole class, not just this one kid. Uh, but it's difficult. And the same day that I get an email saying that my daughter is thriving, I get this pickup saying we want to kick out your foster kid because he's not cooperating with us. And this, this thought of what does it mean as an educator, as a parent, as a community to lift people up? Okay, what to say there? Baskets represent work. They can be contrasted to soldiers carrying weapons of war. Work is generally constructive, while war, despite the many attempted justifications for it that are often offered is destructive in form and divisive in content virtually by definition. At the same time, of course, not every bit of work leads to noble ends 
And the just war theory is based on the idea that the concept of war is in fact defensible as a sometimes needed mechanism to pursue moral ends. In the book of Nehemiah, we see the idea of engaging in both at once. It says over there in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, from that day on, half my servants did work and half held, half of them held lances and shields, bows and armor. And the officers stood behind the whole house of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The basket carriers were burdened doing work with one hand while the other hand held a weapon. As for the builders, each had his sword girded at his side as he was building. The trumpeters stood beside him. So this idea of this person in Nehemiah holding a basket in one hand, which represents work, and holding a weapon of war in the other hand, constructive and destructive, in a sense, at the same moment. Uh, it, and it's a challenging thought for us to think of our own lives, our own actions, our own complicity. Where are we attached to what is constructive? And where are we attached to what is destructive? And where is it so gray and complicated because of our interconnectivity? So what does that passage from Nehemiah teach? Perhaps Nehemiah reminds us that, that, that finding the balance between carrying out the projects necessary for the world's development and resolving the challenging issues that divide us requires to have the necessary tools to ready. Similarly, we, we learn about poverty as it relates to the breadbasket. Rashi writes, um, this is based on the Talmudic passage of, Yo of Yoma 74b, one who has bread in their basket is not comparable to one who does not have bread in their basket. This refers to one who has food today, but worries about food for tomorrow. Actually, it's interesting, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, founder of the Musar movement, famously said, um, the physical needs of another are my mandate is not to bring people closer to spirituality. I mean, there's a role for that. But my main spiritual need is to address the physical. Right? And so um, um, we think about this, about this breadbasket. Part of the tragic reason that we have a global hunger crisis goes beyond apathy and indifference. The vision is often the culprit. We see ourselves as different, afraid of each other, in competition with each other and rightfully fearful that if we don't get enough for ourselves, then we will be left alone without anyone to care for us. We can continue to dream of a redeemed world and indeed that might begin with religious pluralism, made up in a sense of the many leaves that fit together to form a basket. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote in this piece, No Religion is an Island. Because this is a long quote, I put it up here so you can read along with it. Actually, you know what, let's have a new voice. Vicky Cabot, can you read this for us? You want to? You're still on mute if you want to read it. Vicky, can you hear me? Did you want me to read? Yeah, do you want to read that for us? Okay. Is it really our desire to build a monolithic society? One party, one view, one leader, and no opposition. Is religious uniformity desirable or even possible? Has it really proved to be a blessing for our country when all its citizens belonged to one denomination? Or has any denomination attained a spiritual climax when it had the adherence of the entire population? Does not the task of preparing the kingdom of God require a diversity of talents a variety of rituals, 
soul searching as well as opposition. Do you want me to keep going? Please, if you, if you read the whole thing, if you don't mind. I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, if you don't mind reading the whole thing. Perhaps it is the will of God that in this eon there should be diversity in our forms of devotion and commitment to Him. In this eon of diversity of religions is the will of God. In the story of the building of the Tower of Babel, we read, The Lord said, They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is what they begin to do. These words are interpreted by an ancient rabbi to mean, What has caused them to rebel against me? The fact that they are one people, and they have all one language. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The statement refers undoubtedly to the contemporaries of the prophet. But who were these worshippers of one God? At the time of Malachi, there was hardly a large number of proselytes. Yet the statement declares, all those who worship their gods do not know it, but they are really worshiping me. Okay, amazing, thank you. So here Heschel is laying out, thank you Vicky, uh, laying out part of his theology of pluralism here. And um, the idea uh, that emerges so clearly from Middabavel, the Tower of Babel, of how dangerous and destructive it would be to have uniformity. Right, that if there are people who think like this, if only every Jew was Orthodox, if only every Jew was Reformed, if everyone just had the same political worldview, right, as if um, that would be constructive for us all to think similarly, uh, to think alike. Now, there are areas of life I'm sure we can imagine that we all want to be on the same page, right? The idea that we should live compassionately, the idea that we should take care of one another, um, and that how broad principles of justice and compassion would apply, how our, how our spiritual uh, perspectives where religious ideals get applied is quite complicated. And so here we see, once again, this idea of the power of diversity um, and, 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 and how crucial that is for us. And so there is one great tapestry of human life, one big red, red basket. And we need that whole perspective to be national. As we recite on the annual night when we celebrate liberation, Quote, let all who are hungry come and eat. Freedom means all can eat. Freedom means all can feel satisfied. Freedom means that everyone can keep their dignity intact. It means we can reimagine the breadbasket. It means that today we prepare ourselves to weave our individual and collective lives so that they are ready for the messianic day when all can spend their time meeting their spiritual needs because their physical needs. Today we tend to view problems as concrete and physical. But every spiritual tradition embraces, to one degree or another, a philosophy of idealism. It's called idealism. It doesn't mean ideals, right? Here's what it means. Idealism suggests that fundamental reality is spiritual, not physical or material. So are you familiar with this idea? Consciousness is central. There is a deeper reality beyond the physical senses. We can distinguish between matter and spirit. There is an absolute reality, and what is in bliss in Eastern thought? if one can tap into it. For Hegel, this is the absolute spirit where everything is a part of the infinite and nothing is or can be beyond. This doesn't have to be an embrace of dualism, mind versus matter, physical versus spiritual, but can follow an approach of monism, monism, where there is one ultimate reality. Ethically, this moves us toward an understanding that nothing is ultimately mine. 
I am, after all, just part of the whole. The individual self is illusory. There's just one breadbasket, not mine and yours. In Hasidut, this concept is called bitol hayesh, nullification of So it's an interesting thing to think about for yourself. Do you believe that reality is fundamentally concrete, physical? Or do you believe the deepest level of truth and reality follows the philosophical path of idealism? That is, that re true reality is in the realm of human consciousness, in the realm of divine consciousness, is in the realm of the spirit rather than in the concrete. This feels like one of the big five ideological conclusions to have clarity on in terms of a worldview. What is true reality as we know it? Within this commitment of interconnectivity and compassionate interdependence, we can still maintain our freedom. How do we have freedom if there's only one collective? Jean-Paul Sartre writes in Being in Nothingness that one is, quote unquote, in bad faith when one denies one's own radical freedom and assumes determinism. He is protesting against the withdrawal of selfhood. But we can maintain a commitment to both radical existentialism by deeply examining and experiencing our existence, while also looking at a meta-existentialism at the collective level, one that is harmoniously made up of many parts with a meta-consciousness. In this way, we are paradoxically completely separate and free, while also completely one and interwoven. Okay, so on Shabbat, we seek menuchat Shabbat, deep rest. That is to be found not through mindlessness, but rather in mindfulness, where we are hyper aware of what we're thinking, of what we're saying, and in doing it in a way that gives us rest by helping us to regain freedom and to expand consciousness. The Zohar refers to Shabbat as, quote unquote, the day of the soul, the day of Torah. This is the day when we prepare to weave a new basket for a redeemed world. Each of us, alone and together, must prepare the loom. The book of Isaiah says, The sun will no longer be for you the light of the day, and the shine of the moon will not illuminate you. God will be an eternal light. The Midrash explains here that this will be the light that was concealed from the six days of creation that will enable one to see from one end of the world to the other. Indeed, it appears as though we are weaving separately in the spiritual light, we will see how all of our different projects will come together. When the first sin took place in the Garden of Eden, the garments that Adam and Eve, the Adam and Chava wore, turned from or, spelled with an aleph, to or, leather, spelled with an ayin. I'll say that again. Or, meaning light, spelled with an aleph, to or, leather, spelled with an ayin. They, they had flesh of light that changed into clothing after, this, after realizing they were naked. And the Shalah HaKadosh, Rabbi Yeshaya Halevi Horowitz of the early 16th century, writes that while we still serve God with leather, our actions in that regard will someday be changed to garments of light. And so here I offer the blessing as we conclude this halacha, that our physical realities be transformed to spiritual Perhaps if we hold the philosophy of idealism, in fact, the physical realities themselves will be Okay, that's my opening on the malacha. Jose Bate Miri, 
which I guarantee was not a part of anyone's Sunday school education. <laughs> preparing the loom. Um, or if it somehow was that we prepare the loom for weaving, that it was somehow relevant to our moral and spiritual worldview. So let me pause here. Questions, thoughts, agreements, disagreements. Uh, jump off to another point that, that uh, is interesting to you today. Floor is open. What is the meaning of the word osei? Um, osei means to do or to make, right? Like we say, osei shalom. Osei shalom bimomav. So it is, and in Kabbalah, it's one of the four realms. It represents the realm of action, right? Asiyah, it's called in Kabbalah. The, the, the realm of Asiyah. There's the, there's, there's, the, there's the realm of doing, there's the realm of thinking, there's the realm of being, there's emanation even beyond from that place. Asiyah is the way we impact the world primarily through action. Of course, there's many ways to impact the world. This is what we're exploring here through our being, through our thoughts, through our spirituality, through direct action, right? Um, through what we do and what we don't do. You know, you know I'll, I'll, tell you, uh, I'll tell you something interesting that happened uh, two days ago. Uh, a family member of Ellie, uh, of Ellie Wiesel, I was, I was talking with a very close family member, I won't say who, I don't know, because they, they didn't say I could quote them. Uh, but a family member, I, I mean, they'd be fine with the idea, but I just don't want to share their name and maintain their privacy, said, um, you know, everyone quotes my father saying that silence aids only the oppressor. And he said, I agree with that. And he felt strongly about that. You can't remain silent. You can't remain neutral. Neutrality and silence only aids the oppressor. You got to take stands when there's injustice. But he said, my father was also a master of silence. He was also a master of silence when he knew which times not to engage or not to speak up. And that part doesn't get quoted, right? This idea that indeed, morally, we have to take stands. There's certain moral battles. You can't, simply can't sit out. There's too much at stake for people. But there's other things, tensions that exist where um, silence is uh, not only permitted, but perhaps commendable. So anyways, the realm of Asiyah is the realm of doing, the realm of, of doing, uh, which is what Osei is about. So Osei Batemiri, setting of these two headlines, preparing to do. Okay, someone else. By the way, uh, has my, has my uh, mic been a little bit uh, buzzy today? Okay, well, I'm sorry about that. Okay, I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna once again, I have to get a new one. You know, you buy them for 15 bucks and then every two weeks you gotta buy a new one. Okay. Someone else. Oh, good. I see Steve over here. What does the word redemption mean? Redeem for what? Once we are redeemed, what's next? I love that. I love that. Okay. This idea of redemption. What is redemption? Well, there's really two fun, two different approaches used for this idea of pidyon. Uh, pidyon. Let me give two cases where we most commonly use the word Hebrew word pidyon. Uh, the pidyon haben, the firstborn son of a Kohen. There's a process of pidyon haben to redeem him from having to go into the prison. Redeemed, and so that that doesn't mean anything kind of. Uh, 
eschatological. Eschatological is that big fancy word that means kind of uh, like a messianic or a new a new era, a new re redemptive era. But rather merely um, one is uh, kind of relieved. They are, uh, you know, you are redeemed of your duty, relieved of your duty, you're, you're given a pass. Um, that, or another case of pidyon, pidyon shfuyim. Remember pidyon shfuyim? The case that was talked about most commonly was with um, Gilad Shalit, Gilad Shalit, <laughs> um, who uh, hopefully he's married now. I saw a year ago he was engaged, which was exciting. And hopefully now he's married. So the idea of redeeming captives, that a, and this is a great moral debate throughout Jewish history, that when a Jew is, is, is held captive by bandits, how much should we spend to save them? Um, and there's a lot to say there, but that's Pidyon Shreem, the, the mitzvah to redeem the captive. Unfortunately, some have misapplied this to Amer the American judicial system. That member, what, what's the guy's name who was released a few years ago, uh, who was in there for decades? Uh, the, you know, the famous guy, the spy. Um, somebody, help me out. Pollard, yeah, Jonathan Pollard. P people talked about Pidyon Shreem with Jonathan Pollard. The, the Chabad community talked about Pidyon Shreem when it came to... Uh, Rabushkin, that these are people held captive. That being held captive meant like, uh, you know, a group of evil bandits, or, or, you know, the Russian czar, you know, or the Roman Empire. It didn't, it didn't mean uh, someone was found guilty in the American court of law and was, you know, put into prison. It doesn't mean there's not, there's not uh, you know, uh, mishandlings of justice in the American system, of course. But um, uh, anyways, there's more to say there. But okay, so, so, so that's the first idea of redeem. In the broader sense, when we talk about redemption, um, we're talking about uh, two conflicting, two sets of conflicting visions. Let's start first with the mystic versus the rationalist. The mystic says redemption means nature itself will, will be fundamentally different. The rationalists think nature will remain the same, human nature the same, laws of nature the same, fundamentally the same. The mystics go so far to say that the mitzvot will be nullified. The mitzvot are connected to nature as we know it. We're going to have a whole new reality, a whole new Torah, a whole new human nature. That's one set of debates. The other set of debates that emerge around redemption is whether um, uh, um, you know, human enterprise as we know it will, will continue in any meaningful fashion. Is this kind of an end of days? Or can there be uh, this state of redemption in which we, we, uh, we begin to be, uh, to, to be actualized? And so what does it mean for redemption in our time uh, to think about redemption? And, um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear thoughts here. I think, I think the main idea is, uh, again, emerges in conflict. Is this a Judeo-centric vision? Right? Many who talk about redemption are talking about Jews are safe from anti-Semitism. Jews have sovereignty. Jews will be a light unto the nations. It's a Judeo-centric model. That is, that is most certainly one authentic strand of Jewish thought. And others take a universalistic approach to redemption. The notion that we will end hunger, we will end poverty, we will end war. Think about Isaiah, the famous idea that's on the wall of the United Nations, right over there, the Isaiah wall. Um, that, um, you know, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Right, and that um, the lion will lay down with the lamb. 
And so the Isaiah vision of universalism is quite different than other visions that are focused on a third temple, focused on all Jews leaving the diaspora, focused on a sovereignty. And, um, and then there's the idea of tasting redemption in our time. Here, this is relevant to Shabbat. We talk about Shabbat is me'ein olam haba. Shabbat is a taste of the eternal redemption, right? It is what, Shabbat is 160th of what redemption will look like. And so we live in an unredeemed world. In fact, to, to work to improve the world, we have to embrace the brokenness of the world. And yet the Shabbat experience is about focusing, rather than focusing on the brokenness that we do all week, we focus on the, on the whole parts. We focus on the whole parts of existence in order that we can better see those broken parts. Okay, I see over here, I wonder if we can connect the notion of malachot to quantum theory, string theory, free will, or lack thereof. Are we determined to follow the strings of the universe, or is the divine intersecting with quantum forces to guide our life? Very interesting question. Yeah, very interesting question. I think I, I think there's there, there, there's really not much more to add there um, about this issue of, of determinism versus free will in scientific terms. It's a good plug for our, our year of study coming up. And what we can learn, and I think relevant here as well is the idea that humans are heavily determined. Humans are heavily determined, and yet the idea of Shabbat representing freedom, Shabbat as a subversive force in relationship to that, um, in, in relationship to that momentum. Okay, someone else here, please. Please don't be shy. Anything you're thinking about this morning? You mentioned um, that Moses was in a basket and Noah's ark was a basket. Are there any other mentions of baskets? Uh, yeah, uh, now that you asked that question, uh, I appreciate it so much. Uh, I'm now reflecting on something that emerges in the Tanakh, which I hadn't thought of in this preparation. Um, if you have the, the luxury of giving me a moment. Um, is, the, is the fruit offering that we talk, that we learn about in Shavuot and also reflect on at the Pesach uh, Seder um, of, of the fruit offering. Um, there are other cases as well, but I think this one is, is particularly worth uh, looking at closely. Sorry for the delay. Here we go. Ah. And I wonder if the word is the same word over there. 
doesn't emerge there. Let me check one other part. Um, I, and actually, there's a few other cases that are emerging now. Uh, sorry, I don't normally spend our time uh, researching here, but um, I'll give it just a moment, and if not, we'll... Uh, okay, here we go. Mm. Okay, I'm going to have to circle back. Uh, let me check one more spot. It's, it's actually, you'll notice it in Passover City this year. If, uh, okay, I'll have to come back to it next time. Okay, in any case, um, yeah, the question of the basket is interesting, and I'm gonna I'm gonna check for some more some more cases where it emerges, but the cases uh, primarily of the ark, Noah's Moses' uh, basket, the idea of bringing the fruit basket, the fruit offering, um, that that emerges uh, for the bikurim, for the for, for the new fruits. Um, representing novelty, innovation, rebirth, um, and um, and then the, the representation of work. You know, one of my one of my main memories uh, is of the global south, in south, many different countries, different villages, was women with baskets on their heads. The women would um, constantly have baskets on their heads, babies on their backs, baskets on their head. Um, and um, in all these villages, one common thing is that, I mean, it's, it, it was a real problem. I mean, this, uh, you know, I don't want to over-stereotype here, but um, the men were like drunk under trees in these villages, uh, just kind of like sitting around, uh, highly patriarchal society. And the women in these villages, now some men, of course, had gone to the trees, but the men who were still there, they were women-led villages, and the women had babies tied on their backs, um, they'd wear long dresses because they would just pee standing up. They would just kind of squat down in the field while they would, you know, there's no bathrooms, there's no sanitation, there's no water to wash their hands, there's no bathrooms to go to the bathroom. They would just work in the field, go to the bathroom there. They would, they would be able to spin the baby around so they could nurse the baby and then spin the baby back to their back and the baby would be on them all day and they'd be in the field. And then they would have these, these, uh, these bucket type things that they would fill up, fill up with water from the well and carry that. Um, and then they would have these baskets where they would carry the carry the, the, the produce and, and, and other things as well. So I can't talk about baskets without thinking of these women. I, I bought a piece of art over there uh, that, that reminds me of that experience, thinking about the nature of that labor in particular. And, so thank you. Thank, yeah, Eileen, go ahead. And what is the symbolism behind the basket? Oh, you're saying in Torah or in, in, in the Global South? Oh, in Torah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think here the basket is redemptive, going back to the interconnection with redemption. That this basket is, um, uh, it represents Moses' salvation. It represents Noah and his family and the animal salvation. The basket is a place of, of, of safekeeping. Um, this, this, uh, uh, let me check one thing real quick, um, uh, to remind us of, of this Moses, this, this early, this early bit here. Okay, here we go. It's in chapter two of Exodus, verse three. And the, um, it's worth reminding us that the, that the language there is Teva, right? Noah's Ark is called Teva. 
and Moshe's basket is is Teva. It's Tevat Gomer. And so it's the exact same language intentionally that he's put over there. And his sister, Miriam, watches. His sister stationed herself at a distance to know what would be done with him. She wants to make sure he ends up somewhere safe. Um, you know, and, and some actually think of this as building off the Noah story, because the, in, the, in, the, in that story, everyone else dies. And God says, never again will I destroy the, the world through a flood, right? And now uh, Moses is being redeemed again in the basket, and others are being killed. But of course, he's fleeing the persecution of, of, of firstborns, you know, why he's being saved there, firstborn Israelites, firstborn male Israelites. And, uh, and it's brought back to that experience. And in this case, she's watching over him uh, and his salvation. So the basket represents this type of redemption. Someone else, please. Oh, Vicky put one in the comments. Okay, great. I think I'm asking you to really go a little bit deeper there and explain more what the connections are that you're making. Great, great. Ah, excellent. Okay, great, great. Okay, so and this is something I'd love to hear from others as well, um, because this is, this, I mean, this is quite profound, and I think it shapes fundamentally one of the top three questions of our worldview in the world, right? What is our relationship to oneness and separateness? Oneness and separateness. And how is that related to redemption? And indeed, as we saw in Heshem over there, and this is very common in the Jewish eschatological worldview, is such that um, the end of days will be oneness. Think of the Aleinu. Everyone will bow to the one God. It's sort of an assumption that we're moving towards agreement, towards unity, towards one, towards uh, 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 doing away with difference. Um, and, uh, and that might be exciting for some to feel like the moral clarity is there, the unity is there and to some that may feel terrifying. And I think the Jewish enterprise reserved oneness as a messianic worldview because all of Jewish history embraced mostly from external force, the notion of separateness, right? Ju Jewish uh, Judaism is fundamentally on a theological level, anti-universalist. What does that mean? In this regard, Islam and Christianity are universalists, right? We want the world to believe one thing. And Judaism doesn't think that. It actually thinks that people should not all be Jews, right? In that we don't actually, until Messianic era, wish people to think and act like Jews. Yes, there should be influence. But built into that is the premise of separateness. And that separateness is, um, is troubling to many progressives today but it's so deeply built into Jewish tradition and history. The idea of Jews marrying Jews, the idea of Jewish distinctness, the idea of uh, Jewish law having exclusive notions to it, differences of gender, differences of, of class. By class here, I mean um, the priestly class, the, the Levite class, the Israel class, 
the notion of tribal tribes, that, that Jews are broken up into tribes, right? The idea from the start around difference is so pronounced. And it's still there in Havdalah, the whole notion of Havdalah, of separating Shabbat from the week, separating Jews from the Gentiles, separating the holy from the mundane, right? This idea that we celebrate and embrace difference and embrace separate. Now, to state what is overly obvious, um, but as a starting place, the separateness does not have to mean uh, supreme, of course. Um, just like the idea of chosenness doesn't have to mean um, hierarchical uh, preference. Um, the notion that separate can mean different, but not better than. Um, now, to be sure, um, I, I personally do believe that Judaism represents a higher form of truth in other faith groups. Um, if I didn't think that, I would go practice another faith, right? I really would. I would weaken my ties on Judaism. I'd be a universalist. Today I'll do some Islamic stuff. Tomorrow I'll do some Hindu stuff, right? I'll, go, I'll just spend my, more of my time in, in yoga and universalistic meditations, right? I wouldn't be a part of this, this, this experience. And so that's not me saying theirs is false, God forbid, right? It's just me saying that I do think the enterprise and this, for, of the search for truth has, has meaning and has value. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't still hold the humility to say that we're not sure and, and, it's, and it's uncertain. And so to move back to this point, I think that there's, there's a few different frameworks. One is the self versus the collective. The second is the, is the Jewish versus the rest of the world, not versus, but in relationship to the rest of the world. And then there's the idea of kind of the physicality in relationship to the broader spiritual cosmos. And here, the relationship to oneness and separateness is one in which I embrace a Hegelian worldview, which in Jewish thought we call the Rav Kook worldview, which says there's a thesis and there's a class within it. And that emerges from that is a, is a synthesis. And that's what we call progress. Progress emerges from conflict. And then once there's a synthesis, now, once again, we have a thesis against an antithesis, and there's a new conflict. Every era has new conflicts, and we emerge to new levels of progress. And so that's to say that oneness and separateness is never resolved. It's not that we choose oneness or we choose separateness. They are paradoxically in conflict and held together. And when they clash, something new emerges. What are we going to call that? when we hold the consciousness of separateness and oneness. I think about that all the time. I feel deeply American and deeply Jewish. I feel separate in America and I feel part of the collective. And those two enhance each other. They're not a conflict for me. I mean, there's some small areas where being Jewish and American is in conflict, but thank God, it's not a conflict mostly for me, right? Where in prior eras, the idea of being a part of a society and being Jewish was in conflict. And, um, uh, and so too, I think, um, the idea of me being uh, me and being a part of a family and being a part of a Jewish community and you know being you know in my job and a whole bunch of different roles I, that I play in the world as we all do right practically it's in conflict I have limited time I have limited resources but on on a spiritual level it's not in conflict we figure out multiple ways of being in the world and and we learn to navigate that that notion of of that my children are welcome at my work and my welcome isn't well my, and my work isn't welcome you know, with my children, you know, for the most part. And we figure out separateness and, we, and, and oneness of self. And so um, Piaget in developmental psychology uh, talks about this idea quite a bit. 
Um, and then um, this emerges in, uh, in Keegan's work of adult development. This idea that development primarily is about having a healthy level, a healthy understanding of separation, of separation. And that a child can't separate from anything, right? Not, they can't even separate from their own feelings. I am my desire, right? If my desire is not fulfilled, my whole self is, is under attack, right? When my desire is fulfilled, um, my, my, my whole self is kind of, is kind of nourished. And, uh, and, and the maturation of the development process is starting to see parts of the self and one needs and one's desires as fundamentally different components of the self and separate from the self in a sense. So mm -hmm. to an adult development, that if I, am, um, if I am something and that something is attacked, my fundamental self is not attacked. Okay, you're attacking a woman right now or you're attacking a Jew right now. And I am that thing. I am that identity also fundamentally. Mm -hmm. But it's not my whole self in which you're attacking a part of, of, of my complexity, not the whole thing. And so we learn to spiritually separate ourselves from things that are also core to us, right? Um, and this is also healthy in relationships. We think about as we separate from children as they move out of our homes, as they begin to go to college and go out, they get married, they have children, that we still feel a oneness with them, a deep connectivity to them, even through that separation as we hold on to both. And I think that, um, uh, and, and here I, I, you know, I'll get questions and, and push back or, or, or other perspectives on this. Um, that uh, that 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 the, a healthy um, uh, philosophy or theology includes that. that it's not that we are separate, right? And then we will be collectively whole, but actually that the separation will always be there. The separation will always be there, and right. if you look at postmodern art and how it represents the moral problems. In modernity, morality was supposed to be really clear. Think of Kant. Never lie. Never lie. It's a categorical imperative. Right? Everyone should do it. You should never lie. But then we learn what a flawed principle that is. This idea, which was a male-dominant a male approach, because women weren't a part of this discourse, was that principles matter more than relationships. And so a man would say, never lie, even if it breaks the family. And then there were women who would say, oh, okay, actually, not full. Not, not holding full truths is crucial to holding a family together, right? There has to be a little bit of half-truths that, that exist to hold a family together. Because families are very complicated. And, um, and actually, this very clean version of morality that emerged in modernity is, is, is quite flawed. Is quite flawed. And are we willing to live in that gray area of complexity, of, of kind of messy morality? And that's postmodern art, as opposed to this beautifully perfect, picturesque farm or lake, right? We're now going to get just, you know, drops of paint all over scattered in a messy fashion to show us that, like, there's not a meta narrative, there's not a unity that connects um, that connects the story. Um, uh, okay, let me pause there. Let me pause there for reactions to that or something else. I had an interesting thought. Um, if you have a second, Please, yeah. um, uh, you know, it's so interesting that 
I feel like Judaism is so subversive in a lot of ways. And as we were talking through this uh, discussion today, I thought about the term basket case. And I feel like when you say basket case, it's a very negative connotation. It means someone who can't adjust, someone who is kind of an outcast. Yet you mentioned two of, I guess, the greatest basket cases in uh, what, human history, Noah and Moses. They came from a basket or they used a basket and the world transformed in innumerable ways. So I wonder if maybe talk about, if you want to talk about like that oh, yeah. weird dichotomous thought that I just had oh, yeah. listening. Yeah, I love it because because I actually think, <laughs> let me overstate my case first. I think to be a Jew means to be crazy. You gotta be a little crazy, you know, because, um, you know, and part of our assimilation is when Jews aren't crazy. When Jews are, are profoundly normal, so to speak. I don't know what normal means. People use that use that word loosely. That when Jews are, are normal, we just fit in. We just fit in really easily, right? And I think that um, to be a Jew means to be a little bit crazy. And here I draw on Foucault, which is to say we don't um, uh, we don't uh, institutionalize those who are mad, right? Actually, mad in the crazy sense, right? That actually being a thinker, being a dreamer, means you're a little bit crazy. You're a little bit mad. Now, I don't mean this in a sense of mental illness. Um, I mean this in the sense of what does it look like to believe we are tasked with the job to be partners with God in perfecting the world? What does it mean to think that our job is to keep a tradition alive, a history alive, a memory alive, such that it charges the next generation to do this sacred work? What does it mean that if I'm right now in Russia or Argentina or in China or in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm praying in Hebrew and we're saying the same words that Maimonides said in, in Cairo a thousand years ago, right? It's a crazy enterprise. And what does it mean to be traditional and progressive? Traditional that we're rooted in those words and those prayers and those memories. And progressive in that we're pushing the world we're looking to, to actually move things forward. I mean, it, it, you got to be a basket case. It's right. You got to be a basket case. And the basket is a transformative spirit. We talk about the basket as, as redemptive, but the basket is also a holding space for our craziness, right? It's a safe space to hold us in the storm of the sea, right? Um, such that um, we can experience the external storm and survive such so that we can replicate that storm, right? There's times we have to calm the waters and there's times we have to add our own storm. And so I think we've lost this. I think one of the greatest things, dimensions of Jewish assimilation is that we've lost our intensity of the dream, right? For Zionists, oh, the Zionist dream was achieved. We have, the, we have the land, we have sovereignty. What's the dream anymore? What's the Zionist dream now? What, that more Jews come home? That more there's normalization with more countries that there's peace with the palestinians i mean what what is the zionist dream now right this dream of 2000 years was achieved okay check the box right the, the american jewish dream of acceptance was achieved check the box okay so what's the jewish dream now right is it is it hunger in in, in the global south is it is it more military might in israel right is it more jewish schools opened in america Right? I, you know, I mean, it's a question. It's a question we should be grappling with. We've, our, our children are no longer dreamers. That's why they assimilate. Judaism just says what everyone else says. Okay, be a good person. Okay, enjoy holidays. 
Okay, you know, come home to your family. Okay, be a part of society, right? But do, does it shake them? Does Judaism shake them, right? In a way where they feel radically compelled to be for that subversive force in society? That our job is to swim against stream, or do you just swim with stream? Do you just try to make as much money as you can on Wall Street and then go buy a fourth house? I mean, I mean, I, uh, I'm not critiquing that. There's people who want to just, you know, make a lot of money and have a good time. You know, you know, so today, you know, but if, if, but if we're a Jew, there's got to be more to it than that, right? To be a Jew. I, and this, I mean, that's the scary part. We, we point, the things that we point to as a success, it, it's worth challenging. Are they successes? We say, oh, the Jews on Wall Street, the Jews in Hollywood, the Jews in the Senate, right? The Jewish scientists that are innovative. These are great things. These are great things that Jews have had such accomplishments. But is that, are those things primarily what we would point to as Jewish success, that we made it within the infrastructures of American success? Or is Jewish success predominantly not about acceptance within what is acclaimed and prestigious in American society, but in some ways precisely the opposite? Those who are swimming against the stream of how we define success in America today, right? This would be a radically different way of thinking about Jewish education and, and, and what we're doing. And, um, and so this basket case, you know, I think, uh, you know, to go back to myself, what, why did I cry for my daughter yesterday? Because she was accepted. I cried because they clapped for her, because she felt validated, she felt loved. Now that's a human experience, but I'm suggesting the Jewish experience is something in some ways profoundly different. It's being a little bit less comfortable in the world, a little bit more agitated. Right? You can't sleep at night. I couldn't sleep last night. Maybe you're like me, but you're a little uh, on edge today. I was, uh, I was up all night thinking about the state of the world. Um, but this is, this is the challenge that, um, you know, one of our children's books that we read our kids from PJ Library is about Moses in the basket. And it shows how Moshe is sleeping in the basket. He, he, that he, he, he didn't wake up in the basket. He slept the whole time right? um, as he's traveling down. Um, and the Baal Shem Tov says that he viewed his role as waking up Kali's that, that the Jewish people were asleep. The Jewish people were asleep. And Hasidut said, wake up. It's about the internal life. It's about the internal life. So friends, I want to end on this point today. What would it look like to wake up the Jewish people today? I'm suggesting we're asleep. And it's not about the Senate and Hollywood and Wall Street. It's not about our capital campaigns and how much we're raising for various uh, institutions. Right? It's not about the number of Jews who are affiliated or not affiliated. It's not about the number of Jews who vote this way or that way. It is about re reviving a dream, a subversive dream, where we, we swim up against stream to imagine a better world, a redeemed world that is rooted in our history and in our memory and in our sources, but is pushing the world forward. Ah, I pray for our country today. I pray for peace for, for you all and for all of us. We should move forward, however we move forward, to a state of shalom. Have a wonderful day. God bless.